This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, that kind of takes us through the Hobby Lobby decision and where that sits. Now, it already would have been a significant week if that had been all that had been done. Uh, but that isn't what happened. Uh, within, I think, within 48 hours, it may have been less than that, um, an injunction came down, a, a granting of an injunction, I think that's the right term, I may have it wrong, um, was given to Wheaton, which was a different situation. Uh, it's important for people to realize that in relationship to the health care provision uh, and religious liberty, there were three categories of uh, of entities uh, that were dealt with, uh, churches which got an automatic exemption on the basis of religious liberty. Uh, the government didn't challenge that right. They recognized it says in the Constitution, you can do it, you automatically are exempt, you don't have to cover. Uh, but then there were two other groups that were handled differently originally. Um, uh, the, the institutions um, like uh, schools were put in a category in which they were asked originally, and this took various forms over the period of all the development of the lawsuits, et cetera, various kinds of accommodations that signed on to objection and that triggered um, their insurance to cover uh, the things that the institution itself didn't want to cover for. The claim was is that this was being provided for for free or whatever, but nonetheless, the point was is that they had to sign on to an accommodation saying we object before they received the, any kind of – well, they didn't receive an, a, an exemption. They simply were uh, not responsible for bearing the burden at least the claim was of bearing yeah. the burden of, of the care. Uh, and then the third category, this is what produced the Hobby Lobby case was, is that in the case of corporations, there wasn't even room for an accommodation. They had to obey uh, the Health Care Act. So those are the three levels that we're dealing with. Hobby Lobby was a was a was a, a check mark that said no corporations have the same rights and the same access to the same rights as others do. And then the question was, how is the government going to handle the fact that they lost the case? Well, the way they've handled it was to lump it in, if I can say it that way, and I don't think I'm oversimplifying here, lump it in with what they're asking the schools to do, which is to sign on to an accommodation that says that you object. Uh, which, uh, and, then, and so now what's happened with, with Wheaton is Wheaton challenged, the, uh, Wheaton challenged the need to sign an accommodation. Hobby Lobby was just trying to get in the game, if I can say it mm -hmm. that way. Um, and uh, uh, I'm sitting here going, I'm feeling like a law professor with a really <laughs> dangerous feeling. Um, anyway, uh, and so uh, what happened with the injunction was is that the, is that the court came back and said, um, the way you've asked for the accommodation from Wheaton isn't doesn't meet the uh, least restrictive way burden, and therefore uh, there's no penalty and they don't have to sign on to that accommodation. Government, you have to come up with another way to do this. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, let me try to be real okay. simple with okay. it. Hobby Lobby was a for-profit corporation. Right. Um, and a lot of people think, therefore, oh, well then 
we've solved the issue. No, all the nonprofit religious organizations are not covered by Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, it specifically does not apply uh, to them because there's this accommodation offer. And so a lot of people don't understand this. Uh, they think, well, well, churches were exempt. Yeah, but not the church school, mm-hmm. uh, not, uh, n- not every other Christian ministry that you can think of. I mean, for instance, one of our clients is uh, Chuck Swindoll's Insight for Living. Mm-hmm. I mean, so your church is exempt, but not Chuck Swindoll's in So Stonebriar's exempt, but, but Insight for Living is not. Yes. And, and so every think of everything you listen to on the radio, every ministry. I mean, we're talking about huge numbers. Mm-hmm. They're not exempt. Mm-hmm. And so Hobby Lobby does not decide the case for them. So there are literally, I mean, over 100, and it's going to increase mm-hmm. uh, because they're all having to file lawsuits because they're saying, I'm a Christian college. And I can't do this. Uh, I know you gave Hobby Lobby protection, but I don't have it. You're forcing me to be complicit in this. So that, that's, uh, that's what we're now dealing with. Now, let me throw something else out. Okay. I don't want to complicate things, okay. but we have a number of the for-profits who are our clients before Hobby Lobby came down, and mm-hmm. we're still winding down those cases. Mm-hmm. Guess what the government has is, is, is basically told us they're about to do? Hmm. They're going, they say, ha-ha. Well, since Hobby Lobby, the decision didn't apply if we offered some sort of accommodation, we're going to take the same accommodation we offered the nonprofits, and we're going to we're going to create one of those for the for profits, and then try to force them. So uh, everybody's to, now in the same bucket. Basically, that's, that's I think what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to write around the decision and force everybody into the same ethical and expand the, expand the expand the claim that the government is making on the in the process. So it's uh, it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting situation. So so uh, Wheaton, along with everybody else, is deciding what to do with this new accommodation. And uh, uh, those decisions haven't been made yet and are in the process of being analyzed. But I think if you look through the fourfold structure of what it is that we said was going on here, the recognition of the person – I'm going to have to remember all these – the recognition of the person uh, on the one hand, the the, what signing on an accommodation means, the fact that it's your insurer who's providing the service, and then is this the least restrictive way. You, you can see if you run those those filters through the discussion uh, that that you're not ticking all the boxes, if you will, as you go through that list. Uh, that there there still is involvement, and, I, and this is what I think people don't get. There still is involvement of the institution in the process that leads to the provision of. Uh, what is being objected to? No, absolutely. Uh, you're, I mean, the ways I've seen it described by different ministries is I want I mean, cooperation with evil, mm-hmm. uh, complicit in evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all all those type of terms. They are having to participate, uh, which again I say is unnecessary. But that's what this provision requires. And so, and I'll point out, look at there's been over a hundred of these lawsuits, ninety percent of all the decisions are wins mm-hmm. for religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a pretty heavy mm-hmm. – uh, and that's not the Supreme Court. That's all the lower courts up through the Court of Appeals. So this is really something I think that most judges and courts recognize as a, a sort of a direct attack on religious freedom and one that's unnecessary. And so they're, they're getting injunctions, uh, whatever the ministry is. They're getting injunctions uh, because, uh, again, I, I think 
it doesn't tick off all the boxes, as you mentioned. Now, uh, it's important for, again, for people to understand what's at stake here and why if it isn't just religious liberty that's at stake, although that certainly is important for why this is being done, but the sanctions against these entities, if they fail to accommodate, uh, are significant. There are fines, there are significant fines because they're, they're figured uh, daily and individually. If, if so, the the larger the group, uh, the more your the more fines you're paying, et cetera. So that that's there. There's you know there's there literally are cases where if this were decided against certain entities, certain entities couldn't pay the fines if they weren't given relief in that regard. Uh, Rollin, is that is that correct? Yeah, that, uh, what's rather interesting, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, in this brief, said, how can you balance the fines that would result in the death of Westminster Theological Seminary against the rights of a woman to get from Westminster the uh, prescription drugs that we're talking about in this case? And, and you, you know what he says. Uh, what, what they say in that brief is, it's not just simply the right to get these drugs. Basically, what happens is the government, by providing these drugs or these lists of drugs, is saying that we're protecting your promiscuous activities from any consequences for what you do. Mm-hmm. And and so. Then when you balance these heavy fines uh, that affect the, the entire country, if you will, uh, because so many of these organizations are major entities. I mean, we're, we're just not talking about a, a couple evangelical seminaries or schools. Uh, what is interesting is I'm on the LinkedIn chat room for the uh, Wheaton College issue. And most of the arguments in that chat room are people that are arguing in favor of the mandate and against Wheaton College. And these are alumni of, of the college. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does strike me that, uh, number one, I can't understand how this case came up because the government lost the case of Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and school uh, versus uh, EEOC when it tried to determine whether this was a legitimate religious involvement in the assignment of ministerials to teach mathematics in that school. Hmm. That should have been the end of it. And, And it seems to me from what I hear around Washington is how can this continue to percolate when We've got such a decisive uh, decision in the Hosanna Tabor case that the government is still pushing this mandate. And, you know, we talk about the fines, but all of these organizations are having to pay lawyers' fees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Or uh, lawyers uh, such as Kelly's organization are still having to cover the cost through the donations. The cost of litigating this thing is incredible, and it's totally unnecessary. Hmm. Hmm. 
Well, that's interesting. So let, let's uh, – we've talked about the Wheaton case and we've talked about the Hobby Lobby case. I want to close our time by talking about the importance of religious liberty. I, I think that that's a, an important theme to wrap around. I mean, we've talked about the kind of the <laughs> blood and gory details of these particular cases, and the details are really fine points, but I, I think it's important to work through them so that people get what's at stake and why. You know, I, I can see some little old lady out there listening to us, and she's going, just sign the accommodation. <laughs> it's so simple. A little signature, a date, it's all over. But there actually are very, very important issues at stake here. Uh, why – and Kelly, since you represent an organization that talks about this all the time – why is religious liberty such an important right? So for some people, it's actually one of the primary rights our Constitution uh, gives to people. Yeah, you give that example of the little old lady who's saying, why don't they just sign it? Or is I, Immediately what comes to my mind is Thomas More. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he just – you know, I mean, that's the reason because, I mean, people – you're asking people to violate their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason it's important I – mean, there's a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, we could talk about a lot. Let me just do a few. Uh, one of the reasons why you have religious freedom, our founders understood, was because if you actually ask people to choose between following their God or their government, many people will choose God. And what that results in is anarchy. Mm-hmm. And chaos, and so you you don't want the government in a position of trying to force people to violate your faith, their faith, because you're going to create all kinds of problems. I can't think of a bigger example than this one, mm-hmm. and in that, I mean, I can't think of any other issue where the government has been so belligerent as to cause literally hundreds of lawsuits over this one thing, and the result being 90% win rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just so. So that's one. Uh, and I think this was a big one because maybe somebody's listening to this and they're not religious, mm-hmm. and they go, "Well, why is religious liberty important to me, or is it?" And the answer is yes. Uh, the founders wrote a lot on religious freedom. They called it our first freedom, um, and the reason they called it our first freedom is they understood that if you lose religious freedom, you will lose all your freedom. Uh, that your know, political freedom, everything else. I mean, the, it, once the government has a right to get between you and your conscience, or you and your God, gets in your head. It, it's yeah. it, you've really lost things. And the, you know, think about it. The one thing that totalitarianism can never allow are citizens who hold an allegiance to one higher than the government. Hmm. So when totalitarianism comes in, you will always see as one of the first flashpoints an attack on religious freedom, because they've got citizens who are holding an allegiance to God. And so it is, the founders understood it to be, I mean, it's right in the first part of the First Amendment, the, mm-hmm. very, the first two clauses. Uh, and so it is, it's why America is America. And you take it away, and you really will destroy America. So it's, it's very important. And that's why it's so frustrating when people look at Hobby Lobby and they say it's about contraceptives or it's about... I mean, you. Na- I mean, you can't ever let the issue, uh, you know, over, you know, blind you essentially to the the principle of religious freedom. You might disagree with that religious person or what their beliefs are on a particular issue. Where they draw the line as to what they may or may not yeah, use. Yeah, but don't ever give the government the power to violate to force them to firmly violate their own faith because once the government has that power. They have the power to tell you anything they want to, mm-hmm. and you you will have lost it at that point. Hmm. Hmm. Rollin, why do you see religious liberty support? 
One one of my favorite quotations is on the Jefferson Memorial here in Washington, where Jefferson said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that those liberties are a gift uh, of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Hmm. And, and, and so as I listen to Kelly now and as I read these decisions and having just come back from China where these issues are being debated at the highest levels of government, I, I keep thinking of the, the statement from uh, Thomas Jefferson. There is one other thing that strikes me that why a lot of this is important. You know, uh, Saeed uh, Kitabi, a leading Muslim radical and one of Osama bin Laden's favorite writers, came to the United States in the 1940s and studied in Colorado. And he wrote on leaving that the church was a grotesque schizophrenia. And about 20 years later, uh, somebody wrote that churches in America are privately engaging but pro publicly irrelevant. And, and it seems to me that part of our fight, aside from religious freedom, is, as Westminster put it, to live out our lives, all of our lives which are worship to God to do honorably what we do in our work as uh, unto the Lord. And so these ideas of religious freedom aren't simply the idea to worship as we want to, which they are surely that, but they go at the very heart of what it means to be a believer, to, to live not only out in the church, but to live actively and engaged in, in the culture. And I, I just think that the more these fights happen, the more Christians are going to be aware that we've got to put our stake as uh, Martin Luther did and, and say, I stand on this point, you know. It, it's, I, I think it's vital for the church and vital for us in the church to be able to do that. And we'll lose some, I'm sure. You know, as as Kelly said, 90% of these cases are wins, which means 10% have lost. <laughs> and you wonder how in the world that has happened. And, and you look at what's happening in the case of same-sex marriage. Why has uh, the church basically abandoned the, the fight? And it's important that we do as Wheaton did, as Holly Lobby and other uh, organizations do to fight this kind of encroachment and the idea that the government is the ultimate giver of all good things. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, and I think that the important thing in the midst of what you're saying is is that it not only is the church protected by by what uh, religious liberty represents, but as Kelly has also pointed out, it really is a protection for everybody. Um, I, I think that sometimes in the context of, uh, you know, the, these kinds of events are getting sucked into the vortex of what we call the culture wars that are going on around us, and no one denies that there, there, there is a huge uh, ideological debate going on in our country about, about its direction and that kind of thing. But I think the danger sometimes is, is that in the midst of discussing these issues, people think, well, you're just defending your side, and you're just defending your interests. But in fact, when Thomas Jefferson says this, if I can say it this way, as a Unitarian, uh, you know, uh, makes these kinds of statements, part of the point that he's making is he's talking about some fundamental uh, religious rights that come to people because we're all made in the image of God. We all, we all have a transcendent beyond the human structures that exist in our world to which we are responsible um, to, to be responsible to and to be accountable to. And I think that that is a very, very important dimension of this conversation. The church is not merely defending her right to religious liberty. She's defending the right of religious liberty to a Jewish person or to, uh, to someone who's Muslim or to someone who has no faith at all. Um, uh, to to be able to live out in the context of their conscience and to do so in a way that also allows them to live with and next to neighbors who think differently than they do without having everybody be dictated to about what it is that they're supposed to do. Fair enough? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think we, you know, we've talked about religious freedom, but I want to make sure we think about uh, the differences in some types. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've been doing religious freedom cases for a quarter century. And the most common case you normally have is, uh, you know, uh, citizen A is doing something and the government says, hey, you can't do that. And citizen A says, well, I'm doing this because of my faith. And they say, well, we don't really care. We're not going to allow you to do that. And then you have a, a lawsuit over how you balance that and whether they are protected in, in living out their faith in that way. That's, I think, most religious freedoms cases. What we're talking about here is, is, I think, the very extreme level of violations of religious freedom. So it's on the other end of the spectrum is what it, you're saying. It is. It's, yeah. it's we, the government, want to force you to affirmatively engage in acts that violate your faith and conscience. Mm-hmm. You see how much more mm-hmm. – um, I mean, because that's never necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the government – if somebody doesn't want to, you know, pull the switch on the electrocution chair – the government really doesn't have to order citizens to take their turns doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're talking about. This is like the really the ultimate intolerance by the government for religious freedom is when they begin, you know, number one, punishing you for what you believe or forcing you to affirmatively engage in acts that you consider sin or that violate your faith. And that's why this is such an important uh, case because in this case it's, it's these particular statutes. But really what it's at issue is, can the government order you to engage in acts that violate your faith? And once you say yes with this one, 
just fill in the next one and the next one and the next one because the precedent is now there. Yeah, if the law were written in the reverse direction and it were forcing people who believe that they ought to have access to these uh, drugs and care and said, you absolutely can't do that and and you can, and we're going to ask you to pay for the privilege of preventing you to do that, they'd be up in arms <laughs> well, Sure, they, uh, if the shoe were reversed. And and I think one of the ironies is, is that it, 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 and this is why the discussion of access to me is so important, is again, no one is saying that a person who chooses to want to exercise this care shouldn't within the the way we could structure this be able to get uh, be denied that access no one's saying that they're simply saying please don't ask me to participate in that choice right uh, protect me from being complicit or a party to or a trigger for um, that taking place and um, I, I I really, my hope would be that when someone listens to this, no matter what side they're on and what they think this case should be and how it should be decided, that they would they would appreciate um, really the concern that exists for everybody in, in thinking about this case and, and, and what is involved in it, that the, the protection of religious liberty – another way to say it, perhaps more neutrally, if there is such a term, is to say what we're talking about is protecting people's consciousness. And their and their and their right to be who they are and believe uh, what they do without forcing them to engage in acts that they see as a violation of their own moral uh, uh, their own moral positions and moral standards. Fair enough. But what, what is rather interesting, uh, I'm I'm a part of the Religious Freedom Project at the Berkeley Center, Georgetown University, and Georgetown is partnering with Baylor uh, University in this uh, project. And uh, the day before the argument in these cases, the Berkeley Center sponsored a, uh, a, a seminar, a whole day seminar on the subject. And the Green family were there, as were uh, all of the, the lawyers that are representing them. Were, were you there, Kelly? I wasn't. I, I got there right after, uh, but I know they also had the debate or discussion between Judge Starr and Alan Dershowitz. Uh, well, they did. That. That's what, what I was going to mention. What, what was interesting is both Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz agreed on virtually everything. <laughs> uh, and And what was funny is Alan said that he had been thinking about this for 65 years since his father was arrested for opening his store on Sunday. Hmm. Uh, in Jewish theology, justice is always to be pursued, never achieved. Uh, but what he, what he said was his father closed the store on the Sabbath on Saturday and opened it on Sunday, and he's arrested and tried. And he took his boy, Alan, out of school as a 10-year-old to sit in on the trial uh, there in New York, hmm. in which he was ultimately acquitted on the religious freedom issue. And, and this was a Jewish man asserting his rights not to be open on, uh, or not to be closed on Sunday since he was closed on the Sabbath. And Alice, Alan said that since he's been thinking about this for 65 years, this is what has motivated him so strongly in the area of religious freedom. And so both Ken and, and Alan were very much together in discussing what was coming before the Supreme Court. And ironically, both of them agreed with the outcome that we 
uh, saw uh, several months later. So what is probably happening is – I'm going to ask you to be pro legal prophets now um, – what is probably happening is we're headed to another round of, 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 of lawsuits. And I take it that the legal question that we're still going to be pursuing, not a, not the list of four, but the but the key legal question is, is this uh, what is it the least restrictive, restrictive means. way mm -hmm. means uh, of providing uh, for uh, for the situation in which we find ourselves in? Is that is that likely where we're headed? I think so. Uh, I think you know that was the basis of the decision in Hobby Lobby, and uh, and yet they left. The decision open with regard to all the nonprofits, and there are many of these lawsuits going on already. Uh, in addition to Wheaton, there's the Little Sisters of the Poor. That's right. right? Which yeah, is like, one of the right. most incredible. The idea that the government is trying to force nuns to provide abortifacients to their fellow nuns uh, or to be complicit in that is. Uh, it's just, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, most people when they hear that, when they go, what? They're mm -hmm. doing what? And I think it shows the extremity of. This is this whole thing is unnecessary, mm -hmm. and you really have to put yourself in an extreme position to do it in the way that they're doing it. But uh, we're filing almost uh, another lawsuit a week on behalf of numerous clients, uh, mm -hmm. whether they're Christian colleges, whether they're, as I mentioned, you know, Chuck Swindoll mm -hmm. and Insight for Living Ministries. You see all the time; they're all coming up against this. You know, where they're now having to make the decision right. on either I'm going to be paying for. These abortion-causing uh, drugs, you know, through by by this insurance being provided to my people here, uh, or I'm going to have to do something legally, and uh, because they're not they're not applying Hobby Lobby to me, right? Uh, they're saying no, we're not going to give you that. We want you to uh, to participate, and so it, they're all making that decision. And I mean, we're seeing just numerous numbers of these having to file every week now, and this is going to work its way up to the Supreme Court, I think, and we'll have another decision. Hmm. I, I I think the the Beckett Fund is also is that's actually, right. Yeah, they're actually the persons who are handling the Wheaton case. I'm wired in with a number of Catholic circles. Yes, work with the Beckett Fund that are fighting the same issue. Yep. it seems to me that although you articulate the least restrictive means of providing these, I think there's got to be some attack on whether there is a compelling public interest, a government interest in providing these. And I I thought that the court just kind of fluffed over that. Hmm. And it does seem to me that that is another area of attack that's got to go at it. I, I, I think what Alito did, Justice Alito did, was he simply was willing to assume for the purposes of the argument and the decision that there was a compelling interest. But I didn't see that in any of the amicus briefs that I read, whether it was from the American Center for Law and Justice, uh, Jay Sekulow and his group, or from uh, the uh, uh, folks that were representing uh, Westminster, or even ECFA and that host of schools and ministries that were represented in that case. All of them talked about the lack of a compelling interest in this in the and the importance of being able to live out your life according to your convictions. And the problem we have in America, it seems to me, is we are able to separate, and this is a part of postmodernity, it seems, separate the idea of uh, 
it's okay to believe privately what you want to believe, but the question of practice is a different thing. And one of the things that I thought Justice Alito did in his decision was he tied the two together, and he talked about how important the practice was uh, in addition to the belief. Okay, Judge, just to be clear, when you, when you make the case about whether the government has a compelling interest or not, um, does that impact the access question at all, or is that a separate question? I, I think it, it's preliminary to the access question. Okay. I, my, my sense is this compelling interest test uh, or, and, and the strict scrutiny test that the Supreme Court requires is based on the idea that there's a compelling, uh, mm-hmm. uh, compelling uh, public good or need for this. And I just do not think that that was set out either in the case of the dissenting opinion, but certainly in the case of Alito's decision. Alito didn't decide that. He merely said, for the purposes we're assuming that that's to be the case. And yet, as all of these amicus briefs took him on, that was not an issue that uh, was decided by the court, and I think it's something that needs to be made. I certainly would urge the, the folks representing Wheaton to, to also put that in front, not simply assume that that's the case and move on to the access question. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up here because we're running out of time, but I, but I, I want let me wrap up this way. So if if you were the government, okay, uh, what would, what would you do? Well, if you were if you were the government and you're being rational and not have other purposes, you would simply say that I see there's there's these handful of drugs that. Uh, are causing all the these religious entities and companies all over the country uh, to not be able to give those. We will provide the we the government will provide for those and we'll take this problem away. Uh, but that's obviously the government has a different purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether the purpose is a political purpose to create a war on women mm-hmm. type political issue, a false one, or whether it's to uh, that they want to see if they can get this power over religious organizations, um, it's not a rational purpose. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a it's not a we want to fix the problem purpose because instead of they've now passed nine different iterations of this accommodation right. when they could do it very easily by just say we're going to provide for these we'll just take these off the list this wasn't something passed by Congress anyway mm-hmm. this was something exactly. that one of our mm-hmm. people came up with mm-hmm. the list mm-hmm. we'll just take care of this mm-hmm. but. They want to fight, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why we're going to continue to have one. I think. And just to be clear, it's not a war on women because the issue of access is not is not on the table, yeah. and it might be an uh, uh, an issue of government encroachment on on civil rights uh, because of what the accommodation represents. And and you know, if access was the issue, mm-hmm. the government could provide the access. Yeah. It's very easy. Yeah, they don't have to go through Wheaton. Yeah, and uh, and you or know, the Wheaton's insurer. Yeah, yeah, and and so that's not necessary. But yeah. that that's why you know the if access was their real goal, that's easily solved. But that's not their goal. They obviously have a different goal. Okay, uh, Judge, you have anything you want to wrap up with on this? Uh, I, I I agree with them completely. It, it it strikes me an important fact that has been brought out was Congress did not 
uh, enact these requirements and did not indicate what the compelling public interest was. But neither did Department of Health and Human Services. This was basically seconded to a bunch of experts who came up with a list. And then one of the departments within the Department of uh, Health and Human Services put it in the regs. And, and, and so essentially what you have is a, a group of people that have no connection to determining the public good, either through legislation or even through the administration dictating it. And, it, and they probably are dictating it because this is the, the, the idea that they get from the Department of Health and Human Services. But I, I, it, it just strikes me that uh, we basically have subcontracted much of government to a bunch of mm -hmm. contractors. So the bureaucrats aren't even handling it anymore. <laughs> and, and, and so it's deep in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you all for taking the time to walk us through this. I know it's been a lot of detail for people, but I think the detail is important for people to get so that they can get um, really all the elements that are in play, much of which you don't hear about in the public discussion of what's going on with this issue. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's an important discussion, and I really do appreciate you all taking the time to be with us and helping us discuss it. And we also thank you for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope you'll join us on the next Table Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.